Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their game. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. Oscar Munoz is the former executive chairman and CEO of United Airlines. He led the airline's stunning turnaround, which is a remarkable feat on its own. But what makes his story so singular is that 37 days after taking the helm of the airline, he suffered a massive heart attack that eventually led to a heart transplant. Perseverance, grit, dedication, motivation, and humility are some of the words that describe this amazing leader. Prior to United, Oscar served as president and COO of CSX Corporation. He began his career holding various financial positions at Pepsi and Coca-Cola, followed by being CFO at US West and CFO of AT&T's consumer division. His path in the corporate world is capped by currently serving on the boards of directors of Salesforce, CBRE, Univision, Archer Aviation, and Fidelity's Equity and High Income Fund. He is the oldest of 10 children in a Mexican-American family from Southern California and was the first in his family to graduate from college, earning degrees from the University of Southern California and Pepperdine. Enjoy this incredible human being. Oscar Munoz, welcome to Top of the Game. How are you? I'm terrific. Nice to see you. Thank you for making time. I know you've been very busy. Um, you've always been a very busy person. And usually where I start these shows, just because everybody puts on their pants one leg at a time, is sort of your, not necessarily your origin story, but maybe an anecdote from your beginnings that taught you a lesson that you use to this day. Oh, you know, gosh, you know, I, I, I was, a, a, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Mexico to a single mom. And I, I, I was with my grandmother, uh, Abuelita, Mama for many of my years. And from that early on, I learned from her just this concept of humility, of service, of turning the other cheek, and just absolute work ethic, uh, and never blaming anyone. I stay with humility. Obviously, you led a remarkable turnaround at United and that is not only humbling, I know, and I've read your amazing book, but you have to go in there with humility. So tell me a little bit about how that served you running this huge company. You know, it was such a, a broken place when I took over that uh, trying to figure out what the, the, the first, I've always said in turnarounds, figuring out the first thing to do is the most important. And, and my instinct when I first got there was, again, this, this humble, simple approach to people. I went out and talked to the frontline folks. I mean, 100,000 plus people all over the, all over the world, mm -hmm. but it only took a few hundred of them individually to just to listen to them and, and see and feel their pain, their, their distaste for current management and all sorts of things. So it, it was, uh, it was that willingness and ability to get at that level at many hours over the course of the day and really genuinely collect, connect and listen and learn 
from all these wonderful people that do the work every day. So you went in with that hypothesis. I'm guessing. I, I'm guessing you sort of knew what was broken. But what did you learn from, say, the people that you know, baggage handlers? There's just such a big collection of people in the front lines. Just what did you learn just talking to them that informed then the very big actions you took thereafter? Yeah, it's a great question because you know, of course, I had a, I had a feeling and a thought about certain things, but I really was there to listen. Importantly. It's not my opinions that I had. I had a lot of people's opinions. I mean, from investors to our consultants, to our board, to our senior leaders, everybody was telling me, this is what you have to fix, Oscar. This is what you have to fix. And so, you know, what I heard, more than the specific words, was the emotion. They were disenfranchised, disengaged, disillusioned. And as one woman put it to me so subtly and impactfully, she said, Oscar, I'm just tired of always having to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry your plane's late. I'm sorry your coffee sucks. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because as she's a, she was a flight attendant, um, she has no control over that. So you have a job where everything's broken, yet you, and you're the one that gets complained to, but she had absolutely no control. So we had lost our workforce. And uh, that was the key learning that there's no book, no consultant, no one was going to figure that out without me physically there listening. And importantly, feeling the energy that they had. It's a remarkable, obviously a remarkable turnaround story that is well known. One thing I think you talk about in the book with some detail is the fact that you were going through a significant health situation, which added all kinds of, you know, acrobatics and much more difficulty to this. So at the same time you were going through this humongous epitome type event in your career, you're also going through something that makes you question, am I going to live the next day? So very few people go through both and come out on the other side stronger. Tell me a little bit about what that part of your journey was like. You know, and it's tied to the last question about this, uh, at least my sense to really listen and learn from the people that uh, were in my organization, my new family, if you will. Um, when I went through, I mean, I had a heart attack, eventually led to a heart transplant after, you know, being a marathoner, uh, being a triathlete and all these things. Uh, and and I never, I, honestly, I never questioned whether I was coming back or not. But the outpouring of affection from those very people that were disillusioned, disenfranchised, disengaged, the outpouring of affection through words, food, flowers, all saying get better and get back soon was, I think, a a really transformative thought for me as a leader, my family who would have preferred for me to just, hey, chill and you know live with us. And, and of course, a bonding experience with these 100,000 people out there who it really became a rallying cry uh, for the company. It was the, my, I think my heart come back and the company come back have become synonymous in a lot of people's words and voices. Yeah, you're echoing something really interesting, which is that you're not saying it, but you're kind of saying it, that vulnerability, obviously having a faulty ticker is a huge vulnerability, but that therefore creates sort of this support. It was almost like, I don't want to say it helped because that's not what, what I mean, but it was sort of an unintended consequence of that was people rallying behind you. Is that, is that how you see it? 
Sure. You know, and you can use whatever word you want. Of course, it helps. I mean, it's like it, it, yeah. it, it's only insulting to someone if it was a fabricated, disingenuous approach. Yeah. I don't I don't think anybody would yeah, yeah. stage a, a, a fatal attack. So no, listen, it was very integral part. I, I had I, I feel comfortable that in my first it happened in, by the way, my 37th day on the job. In those first 37 days, I created such a a, a connection with the, the 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 humans that actually run the place day to day, and that outpouring of, of, of uh, you know support, and then the following support after I came back to work, all was tied. So you know, I built that affinity through my actions. The heart attack created an even stronger and more dominant sort of pull and 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 and, and um, emotion. And, and then, of course, that combined together created quite the force because an organization like an airline that's so widespread, mm-hmm. you know, again, people are spread out. Oh, and you don't have a factory floor. It takes every individual's, you know, sort of, uh, you need to have their, their heart and their mind captured, and they need to put forth this discretionary effort to do the right thing for a customer when no one is watching, as the saying goes. Mm-hmm. And so all of that combined and certainly, you know, again, the heart thing was is a dramatic mm-hmm. part of a chapter of all of these things. But yeah, it certainly was part of the turnaround process. There's no question. A little bit of a left tack. It's just remarkable. Um, a little bit of a left tack. So some episodes ago, we had Randy Quarles, who was the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve. And one of the questions I asked them, which I'm going to ask you, is, you know, in the case of the Federal Reserve, you have 10,000 types of stakeholders or all pulling in the in a direction but then the conviction of your i guess your executive power and your decision making sets you in a direction and a course you had a similar thing while running united and you can i know you also sit on the board of salesforce and you've sat on all kinds of boards where it's never black and white it's always gray the divergence and all this stuff so how do you deal with well shoot you know i'm going this way you know, you're going to burn some people. Like, tell me a little bit about that because that's a big part of leadership, right? Um, yes. Um, and I'm trying to break your question down into a, a meaningful thing that people uh, would listen. I mean, you know, when you when you've done the things that we've done over the course of our life, you you learn a lot from your failures is really the key thing. And and I think what I've learned, and I think answers your question, is uh, my answer. The word would be conviction mm-hmm. about what. What you're doing and that conviction not just being hey i'm so smart and smarter than everyone this is what i'm going to do which is works for some it doesn't work for the majority of people uh so conviction from analysis from research from uh building and socializing sort of a direction with a broader group of folks um so every step of the way um we as a, as a company uh, put out a three-year strategic plan that on the day we announced that our stock dropped 15 percent I mean, it was a disaster. Um, and, and because growth in our industry usually uh, takes pricing away and it usually takes profitability. So we announced a pretty aggressive uh, thing. Um, and, and, and I sat on CNBC at, at, the, at the Wall Street, at the, at the Wall Street Exchange. And they're asking, Oscar, how can you be so positive? Your stock is plummeting at, you know, 12, 15%. And I just, you know, not being an arrogant little thing, but yeah. I said, I said, isn't it a great buying opportunity? And again, the ability to say that sounds arrogant when I say it, but our stock went up. I mean, we were $34, $40 by the end, you know, four or five months later, as we delivered on those very things that we talked about. 
the conviction, back to my point, was we had spent nine months developing that strategy, testing it, screwing it up at one of our earnings calls. So there was, there's always, there's always going to be, but I knew that that was going to be the conviction, the conviction to say that our first thrust at the company was to regain the trust of our employees was not met very well from people outside because they, they didn't know how to calculate what the benefit might be other than the cost. But again, the conviction I had was from the absolute direct um, emotion, energy, and words from the people that worked in the company. So conviction would be my, with those examples, would be my example. I stay with conviction. So you sit on one of the largest tech companies in the world, uh, cloudy, you know, one of the inventors of the cloud with Salesforce. You're a partner in a venture capital fund. You kind of have this interesting bifurcated front row seats on the kind of large tech company, very influential, very good CEO. And then you kind of got these pipsqueaks um, trying to make stuff happen from, you know, day zero. This is the question. How do you square the circle? Kind of where the things are going um, with technology. Obviously, Genie out of the bottle with AI, just a remarkable amount of innovation still left to do. Like, where do you see the world going? This is a little bit more abstract, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, so I'm going to take that as sort of the, how, how do I feel about AI and how do I feel about technology and disruption and changes? It is, it is what drives the world today and at a more frequent and rapid pace than ever before. So embracing the unknown, uh, embracing the possibilities while managing the risks you know, certainly in a large company like Salesforce with all its investors, but even as a small startup and trying to ascertain where you're headed, you know, you, you most of us have gotten where we are by having conviction, knowing where you want to go and heading there with all the right information behind you. And, and, and again, being feeling convinced that you can make those things happen. And I think AI is one of those things that it's just this re remarkable sort of scientific breakthrough and discovery that is going to change the world. <laughs> you can learn it, embrace it, use it as you can and, and move forward. Or it does have, you know, people worry about existential risk and, you know, humans will not be allowed. I don't know. I'm not that smart enough to figure that out over the long run. Um, but I know in the near term, um, it's going to have such, it already has such amazing capabilities. So how do you, you know, it's like, again, in business, you, when you have people, you want that hard charging, intelligent mm -hmm. person who you have to sort of hold back from doing all the great things that they want to do because they may not, they may not be doing it perfectly at this point. Yeah. I would rather have that and, and be, and have that energy in front of me than the people that are just willing to just settle down there. You need the balance of both, but AI is this, Again, an incredible scientific development because it's been around for a long time, as we all yeah. know. Um, it's really just going to bring it. We have we we have no idea what it's going to do to us. But again, I don't worry about this existential yep. risk. I yep. worry more about the, the near term risk. It's like the am I talking to you, Javier, or am I talking to your bot? Yep. Those are the kind of things that, from a humanity perspective, because I'm a people person, it's like I want to make sure I'm talking to a person. I want to know. <laughs> If I, if I know I'm talking to him, I, that's a different conversation. So I'm not worried about that. I just worry that, you know, we may not at some point in time know what we're looking at and we're seeing some of that today. 
most people, including me, agree would agree with you that there's a lot more positive than negative. And like every new innovation, there's peril. But I'd rather get 90% of the answer right and iterate and iterate, iterate than trying to get 100% right because it'll never see the light of day. Oscar, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Keep doing what you're doing. The world is lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the work you do. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.